I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Thrilled to be worshiping with you. Um, if you're visiting with us, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. And uh, wh- what we're doing is we are uh, going through the book of 2 Thessalonians. So we, we finished 1 Thessalonians. We're into 2 Thessalonians. And the, the theme of 2 Thessalonians is like anything weird that Paul has on his mind, he just says it. Okay, he just comes out and he says it. There are some weird things in the Bible, and uh, a lot of them are in 2 Thessalonians. So I'm excited to dive into this particular passage, literally the toughest passage I've ever tried to preach on, and um, I love it. So I, I got to spend this week um, up at camp with uh, the youth, and it was insane. Like, so I'm, I'm there, and we're like, uh, you know, uh, hiking and rafting and all this stuff, and meanwhile, I've got Paul's crazy words in my head as I'm like processing what we're going to say here, and um, I, I just have to say, a week at camp, um, I always feel like I'm too busy. I always feel like it, it, it's like, ah, I don't know, you know, somebody else should go. Some of these people here should be going instead of me. And um, you guys, it was like the, it was like for sure one of the absolute strongest movements of the Holy Spirit in a group of people I've ever experienced. Like I have shed a lot of tears this week and so have a lot of your, you, so you guys have, you have amazing kids. I just, it was incredible to be up there and just to see God answering prayers and everything. And so anyways, there, I'll, I'll share as I go, but there was this interesting confluence of um, the camp experience and this bizarre passage that I, I feel like God just kind of met me in that. But I want to start, uh, we're going to be in Second Thessalonians 2, but I want to start by, um, by talking about a scene that was, it was common for me in my youth, uh, being a Christian school, youth group kind of a kid. And maybe you can relate to this, maybe, you're, maybe you can't, but... Um, it would look like this. Okay, we'd be there, uh, youth, you know, sitting around, slumber party, like Christian school slumber party, which is like a whole thing, okay? And uh, we're there, we're hanging out, it's like 2 a.m., and one of our friends goes to the bathroom, right? So what we do is we all quietly uh, lay, arrange our clothes, kind of where we're sitting, sitting out like this, right? And then we go and hide, right? So when he comes out of the bathroom, he thinks that the rapture has happened and he's been left behind, right? Okay, some of you guys have had that um, really unique experience. Um, there's, I, I've heard of people doing, like, rapture drills. Like, okay, if the Lord comes and he takes us all away, like, we, let's do a drill just like we would do a fire drill and be ready. And I, I can't for the life of me imagine what that would be, you know? Maybe it's like, get outside so you don't hit, hit the ceiling on your way up. Like, I don't really know, like, what that would be. But apparently that's a thing. Um, there is, uh, this, there is uh, if you Google this, there are um, uh, rapture pet sitting services. So it's like, run run by atheists. They're like, don't worry, we're not going to like give our lives to Jesus, but if you go, then we'll watch your pets for you if you just pay a fee. <laughs> Terrible. Kind of bad taste. Also, kind of, no, it's not funny. It's not funny. Um, and uh, the, the whole idea of like the end and Jesus coming back to get us, right, to take us to where he is, is like this thing that always fascinates us, right? And it's, um, it's, it's it has spawned all kinds of uh, fiction literature and serious commentaries, and it's just something that's kind of on our minds, and it can be terrifying or exciting, depending on where we're at. Um, Paul dives like headfirst into it this week in this passage, and uh, we're going to do the same thing. So I, honestly, I'm excited. I, I, this morning, I feel like I'm trying to walk that line between explaining the like technical details of what he's talking about, and then jumping back into like the heart of it, and, and really, I think what Paul's trying to invite us into. So I'm not sure how well um, we balance it first service. I, I don't know how well we'll do this service, but there's, there's both things. We've got to know what's happening. We've got to know what's being said. We're going to meet a couple of like really bizarre characters. There's a, a man of lawlessness that we're going to meet, and there's this mysterious restrainer person in there. Um, but as we do, I think we'll see a picture of the heart of God in it, and I, I do think this passage is really beautiful. So first couple of verses. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And, and so we start here, and Paul's just saying, okay, I'm going to talk now about the Lord coming and us being gathered to him. Remember, this is something he talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. He talked about the day of the Lord's going to come, and Jesus is going to appear. And all those that have, like, loved the Lord and have died, they're going to come with Jesus. He's going to, they've, they've been kind of hanging out with him some, in some mysterious form, and they're going to come back with him. We're going to be, like, shoot up. We're going to meet him in the air, and we're going to kind of welcome them, bring them back down to this earth as God recreates the whole thing, and evil is dealt with, and, and we get this, like, new creation that God is making. It's going to be a beautiful thing. So he's talked about that already, and now he's like, okay, now, concerning this gathering together the Lord, I want to give you some more instructions on it. And what happens is in 1 Thessalonians, Paul was basically addressing, there, there's these people that are saying like, hey, guys, um, peace, safety, the Lord's not coming back. Everything's going to be fine. And Paul's in 1 Thessalonians is like, no, you guys, he's coming back. Be ready for him coming back. In this one, what seems to be happening is now, as Paul's writing a little bit later, there's people that are saying, you guys, Jesus has already come back and you missed it. Panic. And Paul's like, no, 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 don't panic. He hasn't come back. It's going to be a whole thing. You're going to know, and um, he's going to explain to us what that is going to look like. So he, he's, he's looking at all these people that have these hot takes about the coming of the day of the Lord. And I'll just say that feels really relatable to me. I don't know if it's just because I'm a pastor, but you guys love sharing, like, weird YouTube videos with me about the, uh, the end of all things. And uh, it's always YouTube, okay? It's never like a scholarly, peer-reviewed book. It's like a YouTube video, so you know you're getting the best possible content. And... Um, and, and so there's all these theories, right? There's all these books, right? Every time there's um, a blood moon, right? Or any time that Russia's in the news, it's like, you guys, it's happening right now. And, and uh, I think Paul is just here to tell us this morning, guys, chill out, chill out. It's going to be fine. You're not going to miss this. It's going to work out. And so what he says in verse 2, he says, um, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So um, so if a spirit comes and tells you or nudges you or something, day of the Lord's here, like you missed it, or if it's like a letter from us, right, or a spoken word, like a sermon, he's saying all these things. These are the media of Paul's day, right? And so I imagine you can see maybe Satan's kind of using the media of his day to unsettle them, and I think if Satan liked the media back in like, you know, whatever this is, 60 AD, he must really love the media now, right? And so it's like him saying, okay, church, don't be uh, uh, shaken, don't be alarmed uh, by a, uh, a TikTok video or a tweet or a Facebook post or a YouTube video um, or a sermon or a published book saying that the Lord's already come. We're going to be okay. And he's basically saying, don't let it shake you, right? We're going to be okay. Uh, Jesus himself warned um, uh, in Matthew 24, he talks about how when the end times come, like people are going to be constantly getting the end times wrong, announcing that like anytime there's suffering, it's like, oh no, the end is here. And he's like, no, 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 it's going to be a whole thing. No, it's not yet. It's not right now. People are going to um, mislead other people about when it's coming. There's all these false fears about the end. And so we need to be worried, not just about the end. We should be, take that seriously, but don't be freaked out about these false fears of the end because he's saying, uh, basically, Jesus is going to work the whole thing out. Let's chill. Let's avoid the hot takes and let's not stress. Having said that, he then goes on to say some really bizarre things. So let's dive in. Um, verse 3, he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, 
proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So here's Paul now saying, okay, this is what it's going to be like. Here's how you'll know, okay? And as he does, anytime, I, I mentioned this last week, anytime the biblical writers start talking about the end, what they do is they're, it's like they're reaching for language to describe something that's indescribable, right? We don't really know what it's going to be like. It's hard to describe, and so they're just reaching, and they start borrowing from each other. So again, Paul is reaching back to Daniel, and Daniel said a lot of crazy things. He's borrowing some of the imagery from Daniel. He's looking back to Jesus in Matthew 24 as he's speaking on the Mount of Olives, and he's like talking about that. And so he's pulling that language in. He's looking back to what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and pulling that language in. So all of this is a way to try to describe these crazy things that are just about to happen in this whole thing. And then here's, here's what we have to know right from the start. Paul says in verse 5 that we, we don't know the entire conversation. He's not giving us everything. He says in verse 5, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And I'm sure they were like, oh, that's right. Yes, those like sermon series that you gave us on what the end looks like, I remember that. And we're sitting here like, no, Paul, we don't remember that you told us about these things. What are we missing? Because what you left feels really cryptic, and it feels really mysterious, and it feels really incomplete, okay? So what we're prone to do is we sit here, and we grab our push pins and our red yarn, and we're like, okay, Man of lawlessness here, right? The restrainer is here, right? The day of the Lord, and we're like starting to do this. And I think what we have to know right off the get-go is Paul's saying, we don't know the whole conversation. There's something that they knew that he told them in person uh, that we don't know. So there's a puzzle, and we're missing some of the pieces. So know that up front. Um, it's okay, right? The, 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 his, his application point is not sort this all out and solve the riddle. He's not trying to get us to do that, actually. Um, the point is, take a deep breath. This is going to be okay. A couple things are going to happen first. And he's going to reference them, but he's not going to explain them in full detail. And so it lets our imagination run. That's a healthy, good thing. But we can be um, relaxed and we can chill out knowing, okay, we're not going to explain or understand every detail of this, but we can get the heart and the gist behind it. It also pushes us to a place of a little bit of humility on this, right? Uh, we don't need certainty about it. We don't need to solve it. We don't need to... Um, even publish a book or do a YouTube. Just, just so you guys know, you don't have to do a YouTube video about this, okay? So I'm just going to leave it at that. So two things, he says, are going to come before uh, the day of the Lord comes. So here's a couple things that are going to happen. First of all, he says, there's going to be this rebellion, okay? This rebellion, or some translations will say apostasy. The idea is there's a bunch of people that follow God and they, that maybe are connected to the church, and they're going to, like, rebel. They're going to leave. They're going to go, Okay? And I know right now you're all like, oh my gosh, that's happening right now, right? And it is. It is. Um, we've seen all the studies and everything else. More and more people are leaving the church. The hard thing with this is we get really um, ethnocentric with it, and we get really, like, American-centric with it. So in America, the church is declining. In Europe, uh, the church has been declining for a lot longer than it has been in America. But what's crazy is if you then look away from these areas, and you look down in South America, and you look in Africa, and you look in Asia— the church is actually growing like crazy. People are giving their hearts to the Lord like in, to an insane degree, and there's all this passion for Jesus. So is Jesus like talking about what's happening in the U.S.? Is he talking about what's happening worldwide? The point is we don't know exactly, but he is saying, look, before the end comes, there's going to be this rebellion. A bunch of people are going to leave, um, and, and it's going to be unsettling. Like imagine how, I mean, you don't have to imagine. It's unsettling to be in a church environment, right? And man, we love Jesus, and man, he's giving so much meaning to our life, and meanwhile, we're watching all these people that we love and care for say, eh, that's not that meaningful anymore. I don't really want anything to do with it, and they leave. One thing that I've seen is when we see those people leave, um, it's, it's hard. It hurts us. It kind of is a shot to our 
pride and we kind of think like, hm, well, forget you, right? Like I'm happy with what I'm doing. I've seen a lot of the people that leave get demonized by the people that stay or sometimes by the people that are, you know, the talking heads and the, and the commentators or whatever, um, talking about like, you know, I mean, people are just godless and they're faithless and we just, you know, and, and I, I feel like when I step back from that and I think of my own personal experience and I think of people that have left this church, right? Like people that we love so much. When I think of like former students, I used to teach at a Bible college, people uh, studying to go into the ministry, right? And then you see not only them not going into ministry, but you see them like leaving their faith all together. I think of friends of mine that have walked away and I think of them and I, I'm seeing, I mean, what is that like apostasy? What is that rebellion against God looks like? It looks like a bunch of people that are really wounded, right? A bunch of people that, like, we've, to be honest, we've hurt. We've hurt these people, right? And so they're, they're trying to process. And they, so anyways, they're, they're kind of stepping away from that whole thing. And I feel like our posture to them is not like, oh, this is the rebellion. Like, you guys are on the dark side here, like, whatever. I, I think our heart should break a little bit, right? When we think, okay, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be all these people that walk away from, from the family of God and, and from the good things that he's doing in this community. And our hearts should break for that. I, I think we should... Uh, recall, okay, what, what does Jesus tell us to do to be ready for the end times? We saw it in 1 Thessalonians 5. Be ready for the end. It's going to come. Be ready for it. And what does it mean to be ready? It means live a life of love. It means like live together as a loving community that's shaped by the word of God so that we can be this place that's like a home for the kinds of people that are rebelling and leaving, right? I think of the prodigal son, and Jesus talks about how, you know, there's the prodigal son that goes out, and he's part of the apostasy. He's part of the rebellion. He goes to, like, pursue his own pleasure. And what does the father do as soon as he sees that prodigal son coming back? He's running. He's embracing. He's throwing a feast, right? The only person that's not excited, the, the only person that is excited to see the prodigal son go is the religious older brother who's self-righteous, right? The only person that's sad to see the prodigal son come back is that righteous, self-righteous older brother, religious person. And so we can't be that community. We can't rejoice at the rebellion. We can't uh, dunk on and demonize those people that are leaving. Um, let's be a community of love, right? Let's be a community of grace. Let's be welcoming, embracing people as they come back. Let's be praying for and loving people. But regardless, the whole point of this passage is to say, look, like, the end is coming. And before Jesus comes back, there's going to be this, like, this drawing away, this rebellion, this exit from the things of the Lord. But it's not just that. Here's the other thing. Um, he says that there's going to be the man of lawlessness. So um, verses, let's see. Yeah, verses, verse, where did I leave off? Okay, verse uh, three. That they won't come unless the rebellion comes first. Then, uh, then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. The son of destruction, he calls him, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, so here, man, this is, this is fascinating. The man of lawlessness comes. Now, who is this? Okay, let me just say, um, every generation has thought that they've known who this person is, okay? It's Pope something or other, right? Or it's Emperor so-and-so. Like, they, everyone, right? And, and I don't think we've had a single uh, U.S. president that hasn't been accused of being the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness by somebody, right? So there, there's all, we always are constantly pointing our finger at who this is, but what happens with this person? This person comes, and, 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 and Paul here, by the way, is drawing from Daniel 11. If you want a trippy experience as backstory for this, read Daniel 11. And this person that comes and puts himself above every religious thing, okay? So anything that's, like, religious, this person's like, I'm the head of it all. Or I'm the one that will finally sort this all out for you. So he kind of puts himself there. Paul's speaking in really broad terms. And then this person sits down in the temple and claims to be God. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 24 um, about, about a person kind of standing in the holy place 
in doing this. And so there's this picture now, okay, a person lifting themselves up, claiming to be God, they're going to go into the temple and just this, like, total blasphemy against God. And the questions that we have, the, well, I, I, let me just put it this way. The question that every commentator has, that everyone that's writing about it, is, okay, which temple? There was Solomon's temple, the first temple that was built, and that was destroyed um, when Isaiah was ministering, okay? So, yeah, it's probably not that temple, right? Then maybe it's the second temple that Herod built that was around when Jesus was around. Maybe that's the temple he's going to sit in. That was destroyed in 70 AD. So maybe, maybe then there's going to be a temple rebuilt in the future, and that's going to be the thing. And so that, like, all these things, and my whole point is saying, we don't know. Everybody, everybody I've read on this has a strong opinion, and it, it, of course, has to be this one or that one or that one, but we don't know, okay? And remember, Paul gave him instructions that we don't have. And also, his application is going to be such that we don't need to know which temple this is, what exactly it looks like, in order for us to obey the instructions that Paul gives us. So there's a relief, okay? There's a relief. It's harder to make the YouTube video, but it's a relief because we don't have to have it all together. And, and here's the crazy thing for me is you step back and you think, I, I told you how like everyone's pointing to a person or a leader or, you know, whatever um, for this. This fits a whole lot of people. So the idea of the man of lawlessness like sitting in a temple claiming to be God, in, in um, uh, 167 B.C., there was Antiochus Epiphanes that came into the temple and he desecrated it. Like this, this blasphemous like, uh, sacrifice that he made and desecrated. It's like, man, that's exactly what Daniel was talking about. And most commentators would be like, that's what Daniel was talking about, right? Then again, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, it was like, um, it was like blaspheming the temple. Totally great picture fit of exactly what Paul is describing here, exactly what Jesus described. And in Daniel, um, sorry, Revelation 13, there's another picture of the same kind of event happening presumably in the still future, right? And so the idea is, he's not just describing what happened, he's not just describing what will happen, but he's also describing what happens, right? So if you look at any leader, and you look at, at like, religious leader or political leader, and you say, man, that looks a lot like what Paul's talking about in this passage, I think the idea is, if the shoe fits, like, wear it, right? Yes, a lot of people have fulfilled this role of stepping in, like, putting themselves above God, sorting out religion to get people to follow them instead, kind of claiming to be God and, and, and sort of like mocking who God actually is. Yes, a lot of people have fit that role. And, and as we go through history, a lot of people will continue to fit that role, right? And then ultimately, at the end, there's probably going to be this time where someone like really, really fits that role, and we're like, okay, this is it, right? So I've heard every president, I've heard, I've heard Oprah be accused of being this, um, this man of lawlessness. And, um, you know, it just— um, we reach and we point, and sometimes it fits, right? But the point of it all is um, not so much identifying, right? The point of it is responding. So now, here we go. Verses 6 through 12. These are the funnest of them all, okay? It gets really intense here. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So remember I told you there's a character called the restrainer? This is him. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lost one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
So here's, here's the problem that he's describing, okay? This man of lawlessness and, and all this stuff, and there's now there's this one that's restraining us. So the problem is, is that he's saying this isn't just something in the future. He says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, okay? So this is like maybe you're comforted reading it like, okay, man, the end is going to be crazy. But Paul's like, hang on, hang on. The mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of evil is already at work. This is already playing out. You're seeing it all around you. In fact, um, John, I, I think I, I mentioned a lot of people will connect the figure of the man of lawlessness with the idea of the Antichrist. You've probably heard the term Antichrist before. Um, this is what John says in 1 John about the Antichrist. He says, children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's last hour. He says a little later, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. You've heard he was coming, and now is in the world already. So the idea of trying to find this figure, this person, the man of lawlessness, and think, man, someday in the, we better keep reading our um, headlines and our newspapers because someday this guy's going to come. Paul is saying the same thing that John was saying, which is, hey, but also he's kind of already here. And this mystery, like this mystery of evil doing its thing and, and evil people kind of stepping up and owning, personifying this, this is already happening. So don't just look ahead, but look around you because this kind of thing is actually already happening. And it's a terrifying thought. Jesus warned about false prophets all the time. Even back with Moses in Deuteronomy, he warns about people who are going to do false signs and wonders and they're going to try to lead people astray. And so the point is, what is coming is like already here and be ready for that. Now, that's the problem, okay? It's super uh, ominous, intimidating to think this is already here, it's already happening. But then he gives us a little bit of assurance in verses 6 and 7. So here's the restrainer. You know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in this time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So... It's ominous, it's scary, but he's saying there's someone or something that is restraining this evil that's going to keep doing it until it doesn't anymore. That's kind of the point, right? So it's evil is there, but it's being restrained. The mystery of evil is at work, but it's being restrained. Now, um, we want to point at, like, okay, who is this, right? And there's all kinds of answers. Um, it's, it's angels, okay? And if you read, like, Daniel 10 or Revelation 20, there's angels that are restraining evil. Others will say it's clearly the Holy Spirit that's restraining evil. And to all that, I'd say, like, yeah, probably. It probably is both of those. It's probably all those. But it seems like um, God himself or somebody on God's side that is sort of holding back evil. So evil is like loose. It's at work. The mystery is already present, but the restrainer who's on God's team is holding it back, and maybe at some point in the future it's going to be like a quick, okay, I'm going to let it go and do its thing, and you're going to see the full force of this, but then we'll, don't worry, we'll find out God handles it all in the end. So I was thinking of it like this. Um, this world feels so dark and evil, right? I mean, it, it really does, and, and I feel like these days especially, if we're paying attention to anything, it's like this world just feels darker, and it feels heavier, and evil feels more unleashed, and more on the loose, and more out there for us, and so there's this scary thought, but it's being held back, so I, I was thinking how, you know, when you're sick, you, you take medicine, like hopefully, and we take, like, you've got a headache, you take Advil, or, or Tylenol, or something, and, um, and so you kind of take the medicine, you kind of start feeling like, you know what, this is not so bad, right, I, I, can, I can do this, and then four hours later, the medicine wears off, and you're like, oh gosh, like, I had no idea, like, it could, Anytime we're on the meds, it's like, man, it could be so much worse than it is. And I feel like that's exactly what he's saying. The world's dark. The world's, the world's hard. It's really painful. It hurts us all the time. But here's this reminder that right now, all of it is being restrained. It could be so much worse than it is. And maybe that's only a depressing thought to you. But what I see in it is I see some comfort, right? I see like the Lord's arms around it. And yes, there's all kinds of crazy, unimaginable things happening. 
but man, we, we know it could get way worse. Like, I think we kind of deep down know that actually, and somehow God is doing this thing where, like, evil is only allowed to operate within certain parameters that God himself sets. Somehow he's keeping an eye on the big picture and keeping it from being as bad as it could possibly be in this intermediate time. And look, this is about, um, this is about as far as I got in um, processing this message. Uh, where I was able to kind of try to sort it out and, and put the pieces together. Because right about here is where I start thinking, okay, yes, philosophically, uh, theologically, it's fun to talk about like, okay, yeah, God and, and his like involvement with or allowing of evil. And like, yeah, that, this makes sense. I, I kind of, I have a system in my head that makes sense. But as I started to process this and I got here, I stepped back and I thought, you know what? This is insane. I'm sitting here talking about evil doing its thing and God's holding it back and only allowing it to go in certain, but I'm like, why? Like, why, like, why does God not destroy evil, right? Like, why does he let it happen at all? Why, like, what is he doing restraining? Like, let's, let's be God, let's be the one that destroys the evil. Like, we don't, we don't want it, we don't need it. I've had a really, really easy life. I'm just being honest, I really have. Some of you have had really horrible things, and it's like, okay, God, like, the restrainer, sure, better than nothing, but, like, why any of this at all? Because it is crushing me. It is killing me. I don't know how much longer I can go in a world like this. And I had to, this week, stop and just say, okay, Lord, take me out of the philosophical, theological um, categorizing of things, and Lord, let my heart be affected by the reality that there is evil running loose in this world, and yes, you're restraining, but why do you allow it at all? And I let myself ask the question of, um, is it possible? I mean, like, maybe I'm having a category mistake. Is it even possible for God to use evil for good? You know, I've, I've used that phrase, right? I think we, most of us, have, yes, it, it was, but look, I, I look in the Bible, and I see uh, Joseph. Okay, Joseph definitely thought that God could use evil for good. So Joseph um, was sold into slavery by his own brothers. I mean, they, they, like, didn't like him. Like, who likes their siblings? I totally get it, but, like, they sold him into slavery as like a young man, right? Literally sold him into slavery and tricked their dad into thinking he was dead. And then while he's in slavery, right, he's like falsely accused and he gets imprisoned. And all these terrible things happen to Joseph. But at the end of it all, Genesis 50, 20, Joseph looks at his brothers and they're, they're, like, they're like finally sorry for what they did. And Joseph is like, look, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So Joseph, somehow, this like, this like uh, victim of human trafficking is sitting there saying, yeah, no, but I can see. You tried to do something evil to me, but God did something good with it. Joseph believed that deeply. Here's another thought that came to me this week. As much as we feel alone in our suffering, and as much as we feel like in our suffering we're being abandoned by God, the Bible insists over and over again that in our sufferings, Jesus is there with us. Uh, Hebrews talks about how Jesus is a merciful high priest. Right, that he came and he was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. Jesus came and entered into the pain of this world, not floating above it, but entering actually into it to such an extent that he was mocked, he was beaten, he was spit on, and he was crucified, the most excruciating form of death. Jesus was not afraid. He's not up in heaven simply orchestrating evil and good and how this works. He entered into it, and he was crushed by it himself. So he knows every bit of suffering that we experience, and some of you have experienced devastating suffering, every bit that we experience, Jesus knows exactly what it's like, which means that when you're in your suffering, Jesus is in that suffering with you. And I can't explain it all, and I can't make it tidy, and I can't make it painless, but I believe deep down that that's actually true. And, and then I thought of this. 
You think of the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay, there's never been anything more evil than humanity gathering together, Jews and Romans gathering together to say, let's take God himself, right? The son of God, Jesus, come into this world. Let's, let's take him, this one innocent, righteous person. Let's kill him. Let's, let's, let's beat him. Let's falsely accuse him. There's never been anything more evil than that. And yet also, I know, there's never been anything better than that, right? The fact that Jesus was crucified. And so it says in Acts 2, it says again in Acts 4, that, that what we meant, like what, what humanity did to try, like we did what God orchestrated uh, would happen, right? God wanted Jesus ultimately to be crucified somehow. And the good that came through that is so unimaginably good. So I think, okay, God, why do you allow evil? Why do you restrain it? Why don't you abolish it? And look, I don't know the answer, but I do know that if God was in the business of simply destroying all the evil that exists as soon as it shows its head, there's not room in a universe like that for me. There's just not. If God is destroying every bit of evil when it pops up, I can't be in that place, right? And neither can any of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a uh, Russian novelist, and he said it like this. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds— and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? I think that is what I've been feeling this week is, Lord, why do you allow evil to happen? And I think, man, I am like, I'm a victim of it and I'm a perpetrator of it. It's, it's my own broken, wicked heart. And so God, get rid of the evil. That's God, get rid of me. And, and I think that's just, right? But in his wisdom, somehow God doesn't work quite like that. He doesn't divide the world into heroes and villains, right? And so here we are, like, in this world that's so broken. And, and uh, theology like this, the problem of evil is kind of fun to discuss, but it's really, really impossibly difficult when we personalize it and we think of the deaths I've experienced, the abuse that I've endured, the, um, the, the cancer diagnosis that I've gotten, right, the, the, the people in my life that, that should not have been lost but are, like, these are the impossible things to sit with. And I was sitting this week, so I'm with, I'm with these kids at camp. These are all the thoughts that are going through my head while we're, like, whitewater rafting and we're, like, uh, crawling over rocks and, like, going through rivers, and it was, like, the most amazing thing all week. And I'm sitting there, and we had a few points where um, every day we'd be in these, like, insanely remote places, no reception, no anything. Kids didn't have phones all week. It was insane. And um, we'd be in these just insanely beautiful spots. And I'd try to find a spot um, overlooking them. Several of us leaders did. And just, I'm like, the kids are there just sent to do a quiet time and just to pray. And I'm sitting there looking at them, and I'm just praying over them, like, Lord, like, just grab their hearts, right? Transform these kids. Like, these are the next generation. Like, would you do something big? And as I'm doing it, I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, God, like, I'm, I, I begin to think, Lord, these kids are going to grow up, and many of them already have, but some of them are going to grow up, and they're going to experience, like, insane evil. And it just breaks your heart to think, what are these kids going to experience in their life, right? And then you think, okay, but also some of these kids are going to grow up, and they're going to do really evil things, right? Because they're going to grow up to be like me. And, and, and I can tell you which kids are going to be the evilest, probably. I have opinions on that. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but there's this idea of, Lord, Lord it's so complex and it's so broken and like why do you even let this world go on and then I just I open my eyes and I look right and we're sitting here and there's this river rushing through and the kids sitting on these rocks and there's all these plants and I'm like Lord even just a moment in this world is so beautiful right 
all the evil, all the hurt, all the heartache, and yet all this like insane beauty. Every moment that we get is a gift, and every person that we encounter is such a gift. And so I just, the whole thing is so complex, and I really wanted to sort it out for you guys, and I didn't ever get there. Maybe, maybe next year I'll have it for you, but I couldn't quite figure it out. But then the Lord gave me, I think, this, this um, parable, and it's in Matthew 13, and it talks about um, the wheat and the wheat. So there's a farmer that goes out, and he sows his wheat, okay? He's got his field of wheat, and then the enemy comes in, and he sows a bunch of weeds in the midst of the wheat. And so once it starts coming up, right, it's like all the harvest, and it's like, man, this is so good, right? But meanwhile, there's also all these weeds coming up. And the workers are like, Master, should we just go and pull out all the weeds? And he's like, no, 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 don't pull out the weeds. Because if you pull out the weeds, you're going to be pulling out the wheat as well. Let it be. Let it sit. Let them grow side by side. And at the end, we're going to sort the whole thing out, right? And now you can take that different ways, and, and, and probably it's talking about something like those that are like growing up to love the Lord and those that don't and, and how we sort them out. But I also think it works really well if we apply it to our experiences of life. And in our lives, we have all these things that are just so good coming up, but they're also mixed with these weeds, these really hard things, inconvenient things, difficult things, and just like soul-crushingly evil things. And they're all in there together. And if you can go back in your life and you can find all the evil things that have happened to you and try to weed those things out, you got to be careful, right? Because you weed that out and then you also are pulling up that time that God met you in your, in your pain and your suffering, right? You're also like weeding up that time that like the, the body, the family of Christ like came around you and like supported you, right? You're missing that time that you grew more than any other period in your life. And so as we come and we're just weeding and I think, man, I step back and look, why doesn't God just deal with evil? I don't know. Why does he allow it to happen? I don't know. But he's saying here that it operates within parameters, that it's being restrained, right? And there's going to come a day where he fixes it, but it's being restrained. And somehow, somehow there has to be enough of an assurance for me of like, okay, I can keep going with this. I, I can keep, like, I don't have to know it all, but I can, I can trust that, man, there's somehow, there's a way that you're working in the midst of it, the good and the bad, side by side, until this. Okay, now we're going to jump back to the passage. Until this, in verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Okay, so all this restraint, all this evil, right? And here he is, he's restraining. And then what's going to happen is one day the, the evil is going to be personified in this person, this awful stuff, and then Jesus is going to appear. And what is he going to do? He's going to exhale. And he, the breath of his mouth is going to destroy the lawless one, right? Like that's it. That's all it takes. In the same way that God in the beginning spoke words and all this life came into existence, in the same way, he's going to simply exhale, and the breath uh, of, of our God is going to destroy this evil, and it's going to be gone. And it's not going to be this imperfect version of justice that I would dish out. It's going to be this holistic, big-picture thing where everything is dealt with. And the evil that seems so scary and that crushes us so profoundly will be done. Justice will be served. We talked about that last week. And so this is, man, this glorious reminder. And I want to leave us with this warning. Remember last week I talked about how a warning is really just an invitation. It, it, a warning is just an invitation. And so here's the warning that he gives. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here's the warning. Is that deception and the work of Satan is 
real. Like it's real and it's deceptive. Like that's the whole point. It we, comes in and entices us and it leads us, leads us astray. And so the warning is Satan is like this whole man of lawlessness thing is all about the deception of Satan. The whole mystery of evil that's at work right now is all about this deception. And so the warning, which is an invitation, is don't be deceived by it. Be a person that loves the truth. And, and look at what he says. He's not saying get every point of your doctrine perfectly in order. He's not saying go live a perfect life and obey everything in the law. No, what does he say? He says it's all about the person that loves the truth. And that is less about a destination, and it's more about a trajectory. Be the kind of person that loves the truth. Last week it looked like know God, and it looked like obey the gospel. And we said it's not about obeying the law in every respect. It's not about being perfect. It's about loving the gospel, obeying the gospel looking and seeing what Jesus did to die for us because we are, we are not good enough. We will never be good enough. And so he says, look at that. Offer yourself to him. Like, heed the warning of this, like, trajectory. Like, this idea. And it, it, again, this is a crazy passage. The, the delusion of Satan. And he says, God sends them a delusion. So which is it? Is it Satan doing it or is it God doing it? I think it's two ways of kind of speaking ultimately about the same thing. If God is working a big picture truth, it's kind of two ways of getting to the same thing, but what we know for sure is there's no one. Like, every person gets the invitation to the good news. Even this warning is an invitation to the good news. Everyone is invited. Everyone is warned. The only people that this is scary for are the people that say, okay, Jesus, I see what you've done. I see that you love me. I see that you sacrificed your life for me. I see you saying I'm not good enough, but you are, and so I'm invited in. And, and look at that and say, no, I'm going to go it alone. I'm going to do it myself. That is who this warning is for. And so look, um, I, I come to the end of this passage, and I'm like, um, it is not any easier than when I began it. Um, I feel like I was really challenged and saw some cool things in it, but I think, you know, Paul calls it the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of evil. It still is very mysterious to me. But I know, man, I've seen in this the heart of God that is calling us into this hope and wholeness. I see him calling us to be this community of love that he talks about in the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. He's going to go back to it again in the end of 2 Thessalonians. There's this call to be this loving community, this people that are just love the truth and love the Lord and love each other. And, um, and that is the call. And I love the glimpse of things that are far off, right? I love the, the invitation to look at the mystery itself. Um, but the heart of it all is know the Lord, obey the gospel, love the truth. That's what it means to be saved. So I would love to um, pray for us to understand this, but I, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to invite Chelsea to come up, and Chelsea's going to lead us in a reflection, so we're going to kind of give you the gift of some quiet time to just kind of process this before the Lord, and there's a lot of heavy stuff in there. Try not to solve the eschatology of it. Try to get down to the heart of uh, what the Lord's calling us into here, so thank you, Chelsea.